Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Hello and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. We're so happy you've taken time to join us today. This is the 46th episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. We hope you've enjoyed the history of this podcast and its programs. You already know Dr. Dale is a huge fan of history. This podcast is a great tool to preserve the history of quail management and the lessons learned from those experiences. Dr. Dale's special guest today has a lifetime of experiences with quail. He's Joe Don Brooks of Paducah in Cottle County. Let's go to Dr. Dale now. Well, thank you, Gary. It's always a pleasure to be with you and your crew down there, and we appreciate the magic y'all put behind the podcast. And we got a good one this this month. Uh, we're going to be looking backwards, and uh, looking backwards in several respects uh, for some long-term History of the Bob White Quail Hunting here in the Rolling Plains of Texas. So stay tuned for that. Uh, here we are at the end of the quail season. Uh, it's been a pretty me mediocre to poor season for most of us. South Texas has fared a good bit better. Uh, but I've got reason for optimism. Uh, we've had a couple of rains in October and November. Got an incredible crop of fillery out there, and uh, that should bode well for the quail going into the reproductive season. That snow that we got uh, towards the end of uh, January was a good one, and that ought to bring on our broomweed seedlings, and nothing gets me giddy about quail like a good crop of broomweed does. And then one of my good buddies, a shout-out to Cleve Wagstaff from North Carolina. Cleve was hunting out around Lubbock uh, about the 22nd of January and sent me pictures as he cleaned a rooster bob white and he said are these eggs in this bird and they weren't eggs they were the bird's gonads it's testes uh, but they were the size of double lot buckshot and the right color to indicate that that bird was uh, ready to rock and roll now i don't know if that's uh, exactly what that means that's a good two to three months earlier than what we'd expect to see that type of development in the reproductive system I'm hoping that those uh, gonadal development uh, suggests that we're going to have an early breeding season. So we'll keep our eyes posted on that and keep you tuned up on that. When I was a seventh grader in Hollis High School, the lieutenant governor of Oklahoma, George Nye, came and spoke to our assembly one day, later to become Governor Nye. And this was about 1969. And I will never forget one of the silver bullets that he shared with us. He was a history teacher before getting into politics. And a quotation that he used that day and that I've used many times since then is, quote, we study the past and apply it to the present that we may affect the future, end quote. And for any student of history, uh, again, we can learn lessons from the past and, and uh, so we're not surprised when certain things happen if we've been a good student of history. And we're going to use that metaphor today as we talk about some past events relative to the Bob White and what it may mean for us today and, and in the future. Uh, if you've ever been to a Bob White Brigade to a Quillmaster session, you've probably seen me give a Vespers program called Susie's 12-Point Plan for Success, which is a series of life lessons that I learned from my bird dog, Susie. Well, point number two therein says, Hug Your Giants. 
it says to take advantage while you have the time and while you have the opportunity to thank those people that have been influential in your life because literally you never know when the last time you're going to see them. And we can all relate to that uh, where we meant to go by and see Uncle Bill, but all of a sudden two weeks later Uncle Bill's gone kind of thing. I read a Facebook quote not long ago that uh, supposedly an African proverb, I'm not sure if that's true the origin or not, but the quote says, when an old man dies, a library burns to the ground. I'm going to repeat that. When an old man dies, a library burns to the ground. So again, thinking of all the knowledge that that individual has accumulated, and if he hasn't, he or she hasn't written those down or otherwise shared them uh, with the future generations, a lot, most of that information goes with him or her. And one of the lamentations that I've had since producing this podcast is, that I missed the opportunity to talk to some of those giants. And I'll uh, point specifically at A.V. Jones down at uh, Albany, Texas. A.V. was a gentleman I'd befriended long ago, um, almost an uncle figure to me there and a, and a patriarch there in the Albany community. I called him the Dean of North Texas Quail Hunters, and he passed away about 18 months ago, and I missed the opportunity to, to get him on tape. And uh, again, I lament that. And there are others that that again, I will always feel badly that we don't have the written record or in this case, a uh, transcription of, of what that, that individual thought about, again, in our case, quail. I often think of A.S. Jackson. Uh, you've heard us talk about A.S. Jackson, Parks and Wildlife Biologist in the 40s and so forth, and uh, just a naturalist and knew so much about quail. I met A.S. about 1990 when he was 92 years old and bedridden. But I didn't have the tape recorder, and I've lamented the fact that I didn't record some of those conversations. But his mind was sharp, and his recall was, was incredibly interesting. We're with a gentleman like that today, uh, Joe Don Brooks from Paducah. And we're going to visit more with Joe Don here in just a second. But I'm uh, remiss in not welcoming a new member to our team Dana Wright. Dana is no stranger to many of you. If you've spent any time in the Rolling Plains, uh, you recognize her name from Texas Parks and Wildlife, where she just completed a 30-year career, and we were lucky enough with the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation to be able to pick up Dana in her retirement. She's still got a lot of energy and creativity, and we're looking forward to, to uh, tapping into that. And uh, she's going to be in charge of a new program that we've got called the sportsman's ranch training program for veterans that we hope to kick off later this spring and also instrumental in the revitalization of the statewide quail symposium that will be coming in mid-august in abilene more information on those ideas uh, later but dana welcome aboard we're certainly proud to have you as part of our team thanks dale um, i'm certainly happy to be part of the rolling plains quail research foundation and look forward to doing uh, more with y'all and learning about quail and and uh, getting some new outreach ideas out there for folks and uh, spread the word about quail. All right, that's what I like to hear and I appreciate again the, the excellence that you've brought to the table in your career and we look forward to uh, capitalizing on that with quail in mind. And uh, again, Dana lives here at um, Paducah as well. So we're on the on site in Paducah, Texas, Cottle County, and our guest uh, this month again is Joe Don Brooks of Paducah. So, Joe Don, welcome aboard. We're glad to have you here today. Thank you, Neil. 
And I'd ask by uh, starting off by giving us your elevator speech. Uh, where are you from? Uh, what did you do for a living? Those kind of things. I was born at Hackberry in 1933. That's about 17 miles southeast of Paducah. And uh, uh, I've worked for the Texas Employment Commission 35 years and have farmed and run cattle in between. And I'm assuming you've chased bird dogs and picked up bob white quail here and there. I've had a couple of bird dogs, a couple of pointers that uh, was real well, did good on birds. So born in 33, that makes you coming up on your 89th birthday, would that be right? I'll be 90 in May. Be 90 in May. And again, uh, that's what we hope to tap into is, is some of that long-term institutional knowledge about what you've seen uh, during your lifetime good and bad, and hopefully, again, going back to that history lesson, applying it to the present that we may affect the future. I got a shout-out. You mentioned Hackberry, Texas. Uh, I know there's a couple of young men down there that have uh, been influential in my life. They were both graduate students and products of our Bob White and Buckskin Brigades, uh, John and Drew McEachern. So a shout-out to both them. John is now a Parks and Wildlife Biologist uh, in San Angelo, and and Drew works for the University of Texas Lands and is a range manager uh, for them. So uh, both good resource professionals. And uh, they worked at the very first crew of interns we had there at the uh, research ranch in 2007. They were both members of that intern crew. Did you know them by chance, Joe Dunn? Real well. It's a good family. They're good young, good young men. And uh, again, we're always, we always point to the success stories from our Bob White and Buckskin Brigade, but they'd be on the short list for that. They've done well. We're proud to know them. Where did we meet, Joe Don? I know we've, you and I have had, uh, I've talked with you a number of times over the years, but I can't really recall where we might have met at for the first time. I believe it was in Aspermont at a hog meeting. Okay. I'd, I'd been to several of your meetings and uh, seminars, but I believe that was maybe the first one. Okay, and... Uh, it's it's always uh, gratifying to me when I go to a location and somebody comes up to me and say, I met you at a quail appreciation day or a feral hog or a brush sculpting field day. So uh, a lot of time and effort and boot leather going into all those educational programs. It's always nice to know that uh, got some return on investment there. I want you to, again, begin going back in your memory, Joe Don. Tell me about your first quail. I killed that quail when I was about six years old, so that's, uh, I was in being 39. That's, that was before I was a gleam in anybody's eye, <laughs> for sure. Um, was that on a wing? No, it's sitting on a tree limb. Sitting on a tree limb? <laughs> My shields were limited. <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to try to be judgmental because I've shot a fair number when I was that age, a little older, <laughs> on the ground. Pot shooting was uh, never... Well, it was part of the practice where I grew up in Oklahoma, although it was, wasn't quite legal. But uh, statute limitations is running out on those. But you brought up shooting it in a, in a tree. Uh, were you armed with a 410, or what was your weapon of choice? I had a Savage 410 break open. And that's what, uh, now, Dana, beginning quail hunter, they tell us today, you know, don't start a kid on a 410. That's an expert shotgun. But nearly all of us uh, of, of my vintage and older uh, started off with a Revelation or a Stevens 410 or something like that. And um, You still got it? You, you still have that gun? Yeah, Brad has it. 
And if you ever want a lesson in humility, uh, if you've been shooting with a 20 gauge or a 12 gauge, we'll pick up at 410 of your youth and go crow hunting and you'll probably eat some humble pie before <laughs> the day's over uh, because literally it is a 14, it is a uh, expert's gun. Um, so you've been in Paducah and Cottle County all your life? All my life. Well, I took off to go to college in the oil field for seven years and back, it's always been home. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the changes in a minute that you've, that you've witnessed again, both good and bad and, uh, so forth. Uh, tell us about, um, tell us about your bird dogs. I had two, uh, uh we called them rip raps, black and white pointers. And, uh, they were given to me because it wasn't any good, but after oh, about a year, they made the best dogs I've ever had. I've had 10 or 12. And I, I suspect you'll agree with me that, you know, most of making a bird dog is giving them plenty of opportunity to express their genetic potential. Right. I had one that uh, came up to me, found me. I didn't find it. I was like first year of college, and uh, an old pointer came up, and uh, my buddy called it Reload, so that's what we nicknamed it. Uh, he said he had a cracked hull. That's why he called him Reload. Uh, old Reload was the only dog I ever had that would fetch crows. We used to shoot a lot of crows back then. Um, now, I want to say that you had a dog that preceded those bird dogs, though. Yeah, yeah. my first dog was six years old with a little screw-tailed bulldog. <laughs> Weighed about 10 pounds. And uh, the quail wasn't care to him, but he put him in a tree. Yeah. That's all I needed. <laughs> well... And uh, for those of you that have hunted, especially early in the season, you've probably seen your dogs bust a covey and they, they flush up into a tree. That's just, uh, that's an escape behavior, and it works quite well for getting away from a coyote or a bobcat, not so well from a youngster with a 410 kind of thing. So it's a behavior that they kind of exhibit early in the season, but then they pretty well learn after that 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 tree's probably not the best escape route after that. One of the... Gentlemen, A.S., again, when I think of Cottle County and what was going to become the Matador Wildlife Management Area and just the the institutional knowledge that somebody has about quail, and that's A.S. Jackson. I mentioned him earlier, longtime parks and wildlife biologist. Uh, he wrote bulletin number 48, and you can still find this online, and it is as good a primer on bobwhite management for the rolling plains as you'll find anywhere. Bulletin 48, A.S. Jackson. You can look that up. But... Uh, I once heard A.V. Jones, I mentioned A.V. a while ago, and A.V. followed A.S. Jackson around when he worked on the Lamb's Head Ranch down there in, uh, oh, in Shackford County or Throckmorton County down there back during the 40s. He said that Mr. Jackson would pull in there to the, the chuck wagon there at the Lamb's Head Ranch and get him a biscuit at 6.30 in the morning, stick that biscuit in his pocket, and then he'd follow quail around all day. I just shake my head. I said, we don't produce biologists like that anymore. They're much more into computers and modeling than they are foot uh, following a covey of quail around all day. And I miss that. A certain degree of natural a naturalist uh, like A.S. was that is just uh, absent from our training and our production new biologists today. But you knew A.S., correct? Yes, I met him in about 63 or 4. And uh, he was just a history book of honey, quail, and anything. He knew it. And I <clears throat> visited with him every trip he came to Paducah. Yep. He'd come by my office and we'd visit. 
Well, that, that quote I shared a while ago about when an old man dies, library burns yeah. the ground. That, that library yeah. was a big fire when yeah. it came to AS. But fortunately, there it's it's really amazing. And Dana, I would encourage you, you've got access to all those old Pittman-Robertson reports and so forth that he filled out. Uh, our friend Chuck Kovleski, bless his soul, uh, had forwarded me a fair number of those and a, a, tro a treasure trove of information, again, about uh, the biowatch. And we, we hear a lot of talk about eye worms these days. Well, A.S. and one of his colleagues out there were the first to report those in 1959. And so, uh, like I said, when, just about the time you think you're on something original, all of a sudden you find out somebody was doing that and discovered that 40 years prior kind of thing. But salute to A.S. Jackson. Um, Joe Don, you've you've been probably kind of following bird dogs and quail happening since you were ten years old or so during the forties, the fifties. Uh, give us an indication of what were some of the best years in memory and what were some of the worst years in memory. Well, all the years were good up till about nineteen fifty nine, and it was a bumper crop. I believe the best ever was. <clears throat> then it went to kind of tapering off, not bad, but it tapered off to about 70 or 75. Our moisture wasn't, it didn't come when we needed it. And, uh, but we still had some birds up until the last four or five years. And that, you know, that, that eruption, uh, that boom that they saw in the, in 58, 59, that was a function of the drought. I tell people, sometimes I, I talk about appreciating drought. And that's hard to fathom, but the booms generally follow two to three years after a drought. And the worse the drought, the bigger the boom. And that's why uh, we're due for a big boom, because we've had some pretty tough drought years here the last several years. And I often say that drought cocks the hammer and rain pulls the trigger. And we think back to that old Stevens break over shotgun. You got to cock that hammer. That's what drought has done for us, because it's bared the ground. And then when we do get favorable moisture, like when we're in, in an El Nino period, some of you remember 86 and 87, uh, you're gonna get a great broomweed crop and that's when you're gonna see your Bob Whites boom and your blue quail. In fact, uh, I, I would ask you, I'm sure you've hunted blue quail down here in Cottle County. Um, most of this Eastern part of their range kind of dried up. They kind of disappeared in the, in the late eighties. What did you see relative to blue quail down here in Cottle County? Well, they went to gradually disappearing about 80, 75 to 80. <clears throat> I always hunted the triangles, and uh, it was about 75% blues back in the 50s, 60s. And when I left, it was probably 75% bobs and uh, very few blues. That was in the 90s. And, Dan, I'm, I'm going to throw out a few lessons here for you, being a, a, one of our up-and-coming quail biologists. And again, I know you got a lot of experience with that, but one of the things, hunting during the 60s and the 70s, you could drive through an area like I knew, Harmon County, Oklahoma, like the back of my hand, and you could look at a pasture, and if it had a lot of grass on it, that's Bob Whites. That's right. If it didn't have much grass, that was blues, but the ideal situation was where you had blues and bobs, and you didn't know which one was going to flush next kind that's of right. thing. And personally, I always, I've, I've been a blues brother since way back because I've always viewed them as drought insurance when we didn't have Bob Whites, like in uh, 84. After December 83, we didn't have a Bob White around, but the blues survived that better. 
And then all of a sudden, like I said, in about 88 and up around Harmon County, Oklahoma, they disappeared. And they've disappeared over a lot of the country, really as far west out as, as the Pecos River and the High Plains. So we've done some work there with the uh, Rolling Plains Quill Research Foundation where we're translocating wild blues. And we've had a couple of successes and a couple of failures. Didn't work well for us on the Matador WMA. We tried it, but it didn't work there. So we're still learning some of the finer points of that equation. Did I ask you which one years did you think were the worst? 2022. 2000, that's this, <laughs> this season. <laughs> it was recent. Yeah, that's, uh, and again, it just makes you want to cry. I mean, again, we can look at the country. We've been dry. Uh, the, the range conditions in many places are not good. Uh, but then you, you hear people, I mentioned Shackford County a while ago, and Shackford, Throckmorton, Baylor, Coleman County, which used to be the epicenter of Bob White hunting, and they're just off they're off the map right now kind of thing. So lots of uh, concern about what's going on down there. And we hope to hold a Quail Appreciation Day later this year in one or more of those counties. So I hope you'll be able to join us for that. Stay tuned to the podcast and to the Equal newsletter for details on that. You said you work for the, um, the Workforce Commission? Well, it is now. It was Texas Employment Commission. Then. Okay. And so uh, economic development was probably a part of your part of, it. part of it. And talk to us a little bit about the economic impacts of quail and quail hunting to Cottle County. Well, back when it was good, up through the 70s, uh, I'll say 80s, it was uh, a lot of hunters coming in. And I'm going to say we had uh, 50 to 100 hunters a week. Motels were full, had restaurants that opened at 5.30, they would be full, and uh, it gradually tapered off, and now we don't have much of anything left. But they bought houses, pickups, tires, gas. <clears throat> but Paducah, I don't know what percent of income would be hunters, but it would be, I'm sure, about a fourth of it. And I don't think that revenue stream has dried up, but it's kind of changed colors yeah. over the last 15 years. So what am I hinting at there? <laughs> well, it's, it's getting pretty bad. It's, uh, uh, it, if it gets worse, we're, it's going to really hurt us. I guess what I was trying to lead you into was the the uh, change from quail hunting to deer hunting. Oh, and, and let's yeah. talk about that just a little bit. What what have you seen in turn? Dan, I invite your... You've had 30 years here in Cottle yeah. County, too. Yeah. What has the trend been in, in deer hunting? Uh, and let me start that off, maybe, yeah. Joe Down, by asking you, when did you see your first deer here in Cottle County? 1950. 1950. That's I, when it first opened the season. Okay. H.A. Lee killed him. He's one of my buddies' football team, and he killed him on Friday before the game. Huh. Right, right out here west of town. I can speak again from 60 miles north of here, and I saw my first deer tracks on the Salt Fork of the Red River in about 1971, and we thought they were just mythical ghosts. Nobody had ever seen one. And then in 87, I shot one of six legally killed deer in Harmon County, and now I suspect they kill more deer than they do Bob White's. And I know that's the case for places like Coleman and Shackford County. Dana, would you, can you comment about what, the again, the the trajectory has been on on deer hunters maybe for this area? Yeah, um, out the Triangle Ranch, I mean, back 30 years ago, you wouldn't, it was all quail hunters out there and very few 
people deer hunting, Frank would come home and say, I saw a deer today and it was a big deal. So, and, um, but now it's more deer hunters than quail hunters out there. So, um, anyway, yeah, uh, quail is big, uh, deer is big business around here nowadays. So. Now, just as a, as an aside and somebody that's always looking at patterns and four patterns, and I've seen it in a number of places that as deer numbers go up, quail numbers go down. And is that correlation uh, or is it cause and effect? You know, correlation does not imply cause and effect, but have you seen those kind of trends in some of your counties? Well, I always say when I first started working up here, people would ask me how they could get more deer. And then 30 years working up here, I'd give a program and people would say, ask how do I get rid of deer and where did my quail go? And um, so I do see some trends there and it kind of makes you wonder, is it too much brush which favors white-tailed deer over bobwhite quail or is there something else going there, so. Yeah, there's, there's certain accoutrements or behaviors that deer hunters bring with them, corn feeders being a, a very visible one. And so you think, well, quail are getting benefit out of that because as soon as that feeder goes off, there's covey quail there. But we do know that there are risks uh, associated with that, with aflatoxin. That and again, there's a I did a podcast about a year ago with Dr. Scott Henke at the Caesar Clayburg Institute called "Is Deer Corn a Quail Killer?" And so you can uh, learn more about that by going back to the library there. But I think something that's maybe more insidious about that deer corn relationship is that the fact that uh, out of if, if you feed 100 pounds of deer corn, what percentage of that goes into a deer versus a raccoon yeah. versus a feral hog? And in the animal uh, husbandry business, they call this flushing their their heifers or their ewe lambs. They feed a high energy ration to increase the ovulation rate. And while I can't prove it, I'm strongly suspicious that that's what we've done with the ovulation rate and the survival of those pigs and probably those raccoons as well. So there are some cascading effects that are, are certainly interesting if you begin to study those relative to deer versus quail. Let's talk about the blues and the bobs a little bit, because again, I, I sense that you were a blues brother too, yeah. Joe Don. Um, what do you? Let, let's let's talk specifically maybe about one of the crown jewels of the Parks and Wildlife Department, and that's the Matador Wildlife Management Area. You've been involved. You've probably been around that on the periphery of it, if not all over that place since it was formed. Uh, could you talk to us about the ratios of bobs and blues out there? Well, when I hunted it, it was mostly bobs, and uh, but I hunted cis pins back in there, and uh, uh, it's about the roughest part of it. But I found more bobs, and since that, I knew where they were. That's where I went back to each time. And again, if you've hunted both bobs and blues, you recognize that you'd rather chase bob whites with your bird dogs because they're much more amenable to pointing than what the blue quail are, but. Uh, I think you'd also agree that if you if you know how to play those blues just right or you yeah. get that four inches of snow like y'all had earlier this week, you get out there the first day, you can have some incredible door work on blues because they can't yeah. run on that soft snow kind of thing. So, uh, like I said, a wonderful game bird. I, I loved it when we had both of them here and, uh, and I look forward to the day when we get the blues back and into the western rolling plains at least. Let's... Um, Go back in your mind, Joe Don. Again, you start as early as you as you choose to. But I'm going to ask you several factors, land use kind of practices or changes that uh, I think may have been important, 
and you give me your critique and your opinion on uh, on what they might have been. Let's talk about farming practices. Well, back when I was a kid growing up, nearly every farmer planted milo or high gear, and uh, it was a piece of chickens, the cattle, the horses, hogs, chickens, everything, and but they gradually quit planting that up in the seventies. And uh, there were several thousand acres back in the 40s and 50s. And uh, uh, you could always find quail in high gear because you had the protection from the uh, bug and you had uh, cows and coon. You didn't have any problems with them much. And, uh, but the farmers could, couldn't make it because the deer and hogs would move in on a crop and destroy it before you could combine it. And uh, so they just had to quit raising it. But I think that hurt the birds. That was a cafeteria for the birds. Oh, song birds and everything. I tell people in 1974 I had to get married. And it was, it was a shotgun wedding, but it wasn't because there was anything about my physiological status of my bride-to-be. It's because my father-in-law, future father-in-law, had the best quail hunting in Harmon County. And that was Sandy Land. It was 40-acre mile old fields with shinery surrounding them. And you talk about a quail haven uh, boy, I long for those days again. I, I'd hate to have to tromp that shinery like I did back then when yeah. I was 20 years old. But uh, just incredible numbers of quail. Dan, I'm going to throw out a term to you and see if you're familiar with it. Bundles. You know what bundles are? Um, is it where they bundle up the hay? Shock feed, yeah. <laughs> okay. it, it, you've seen it, Joe Don. Oh, look like, look, look like teepees, and they'd have 15 or 20 of those bundles. Uh -huh. uh, again, it looked like a teepees across the landscape out there but yeah that high gear or hay grazier some kind of sorghum sudan kind of thing was a lot of seed on the ground for the quail and uh, i don't know if we can ever reverse the, the sands of time but uh, if you could get more of that out there yeah. it, it sure made for a quail friendly landscape and then let's let's think about uh, i'm sure cotton was still big cotton and wheat was still big but let's talk about the cotton what changes have you seen in cotton farming over the last 40 years 50 years yeah. It's always been good cotton country, and uh, but they've gone to bigger, heavier equipment. It, it cleans the ground better, leaves less trash or weeds on top of the ground, <clears throat> and they've gone to more insecticide, and uh, which they had to to stay in business. But the chemical factor, I think, that may enter into it. Yeah, there's um, again, my my dad worked at a cotton gin, and it's really kind of sad when you think about all the people that are involved in the cotton industry about how many of them have passed away from cancer. And again, correlation versus cause and effect, but a lot of those insecticides and so forth and other chemicals uh, probably had some some uh, involvement relative to that. Um, and then again, you used to have the weedy fence rows. And yeah. I mean, right. all y'all can appreciate. Well, I get out of high school, I'd get out of school with my 410 and walk that fence row behind the house and limit out just like that. and. Uh, those really were the cases, but those fence rows just aren't the same as, as what they used to be. And kind of a related practice, which uh, you see a lot of up here, and that's shelter belts. Yeah. So talk to me about shelter belts. We did a podcast last month. If you if you didn't listen to it, they, you can hear Gene Miller uh, talk about uh, shelter belts, and those are true oases for Bob White's and other wildlife here in the Rolling Plains. So tell me about your your involvement with shelter belts. They put those in, in after the Dust Bowl and, and the Depression, <clears throat> and uh, the trees were small when they put them in, 
and they had them fenced off. You couldn't graze them, and uh, weeds just took them. And it was a, for for twenty years, it was a haven for quail, well, not for the hunters, but for, for the if you was on the right outside of the shelter belt, you'd do good. But uh, like we discussed, but it's uh, now they're growing up, and a lot of these trees have died, and I don't. They don't grow up now like you used to. Right. I guess it's a chemical that gets old. Well, I, I think it, a lot of the old fences, you know, or uh, cattle have access to them, and they're going to preferentially graze those situations. So uh, you've got the woody trees, but you don't have the herbaceous growth. You don't have the Russian thistles and those kind of things growing underneath them like historically might have been. Now, Dana, being a new quail hunter, if me and you and Joe Don were to go quail hunting around a tree row, you can bet your place was going to be in the middle. <laughs> and you'd have to walk the middle, and Joe Don and I'd man the outside out there because the person in the middle uh, had to flush the quail up, but they didn't get much shooting because the trees were so thick in there. So be careful if somebody tries to stick you in the middle of a tree row like that. <laughs> You'll learn quickly. Um, let's. And again, I bring up that idea of shelter bus because as I travel Highway 83 back and forth from San Angelo up to Oklahoma, the, the first shelter bus that I see are just south of Paducah here. And then just north of here, there's some really big, nice ones. Uh, something that you need to watch out for in your shelter belts is eastern red cedar because a lot of them, the eastern red cedars are taking them over. That might be good for deer, but probably not as good for quail. So be mindful of that if, if you have shelter belts on your program, on your, on your property. So again, as, as we think about the thickening in most cases of mesquite, um, that in y'all's opinion, has that been good or bad or some mixture thereof? I think it's been good. I think the quail has got to have some cover and the deer also. This open prairie out there is not going to be too good. We got so much CRP and I don't, don't think quail will nest in CRP other than close to a road. They might within 15 foot of a road, but uh, I think you need some trees. And that's something that I didn't have on my list of questions, but you talk about a major change in the landscape happening about 1986, and that was the CRP, Conservation Reserve Program, and I'm sure it was pretty big here in Cottle County. There's about 4 million acres of it in the rolling plains and high plains of Texas, some of those being better than others. If it was planted in native grasses, probably a little better than the plant, those planted to various exotic grasses and so forth. But again, the lack of brush on those and you know our our farm service agency they won't let brush grow out there uh, it can't be over i believe five percent and uh, so at the research ranch we basically took our crp acreage out of the contract and because we thought the brush was more valuable to us to talk about for quail than the rental payment we were getting so if you want to see a crp track that's managed for quail i invite you to come down to our research ranch and and look at the little Annie pasture with us, and I'm very proud of, of what we've done down there. Um, let's talk about ranching. And, you know, this is a touchy subject, and again, it can be a contentious subject when he talks about cattle and quail. And we know that on the one side, if, uh, if cattle grazing was not the major land use, we wouldn't have the quail. I mean, it would all been plowed up and planted to something, so we're thankful there. But we also know that overgrazing is a common problem. So, about both of you, and Danny, you live on a ranch, and your husband works on a ranch. Uh, 
Where's the fine where's the fine line between grazing and quail? To me, I think it's the rain, because if you don't have any rain in your grass, you're gonna keep your cattle. You can't sell them just in when you want to, and the price is gonna be down and you overgraze. Just trying to hold on to your cattle. And you might not want to, but you have to, like the past year. But if you got some rain coming through there, generally you won't overgraze. And uh, which that's what we've missed. But I, I think you got to have the grass cover. Just back to your softball effect. It's uh, bring that up. Uh, you throw out baseball 100 yards, you can still see it. You know, just before we had a rainfall. And the reference he's making there is is towards what I refer to as the softball habitat evaluation technique or SHET. Be careful with your enunciation. And there's a webisode on that uh, so you can learn more about it. But one of the main things there is if you pitch it, pitching distance, I, I pitched in softball, and if, which is 46 feet, and if you can still see it 46 feet away, then you don't need, you don't have enough grass cover. you got to lighten up on your stocking rack. And we talked about the brush encroachment a while ago, and I think, again, one of the insidious things that happens is in the rancher's mind, the brush is getting thicker, Grass production is going down, but stocking rates aren't decreased accordingly. And then so therefore it just plays into that, that overgrazing thing. And in my opinion, your larger ranches, and again, y'all got some big ranches, or whether or not the, what the future of them is, I'm not sure. But, you know, names that are like the Matador and uh, Wagner and Triangle and Four Sixes, uh, it's been my observation that the bigger the ranch, the more likely they are to be properly stocked, as opposed to a place that's got a quarter section, 160 acres. Mama's got a job in town, and they're getting most of the feed they're getting, not from the grass, but from the from the grain bag kind of thing. So, uh, we we did a, a podcast on cows and quail, or a webisode on pods of cows and quail, and you're welcome to follow up on that because that is one of the. I don't want to make the ranchers mad because I always say that. A rancher with bird dogs is the best friend that a quail has. I'm going to repeat that. A rancher with bird dogs is the best friend a quail has. And I can name you several because when their vocation and their avocation intersect, they're more mindful of what's going on with the brush and the grass out there. I, I'm just, again, going down my list of things that people often point to. This is the pariah that we, if we could just get take care of this, we'd be in good shape of the quail. Well, predators are always part of that mix. So what, what have you seen? What are your thoughts on predators and predator management over the years, Joe Don? Well, the most I learned on that, you brought some Texas Tech students out there. to uh, We put them on the cottonwood pasture. We made quail nests out of grass. And we put some in the cactus and some in the mesquites, some in the tobosa grass, some in the open, flagged them. And those students run those traps every week one day a week, come out of love and run them. And you had taught them, apparently, they could look at the egg at the ground around it and tell mostly what destroyed the nest. And because people thought hogs was doing it. But the raccoon, well, I believe, was the main culprit back then. And, and again, that's, that's based on our ability to interpret eggshells, what we call eggshell CSI, yeah. which isn't a perfect science, so it's an educated guess. But uh, again, we referred to deer hunting and the deer feeders. And Dana, you're a Parks and Wildlife biologist for many years. Mm -hmm. What do you think the population 
of raccoons has done over the last 30 years? Skyrocketed. <laughs> so oh, definitely. You know, a lot of landowners I work with, the first thing they do is ask, uh, can I dig a tank or a pond? And um, sure enough, uh, those things to me attract raccoons and have that water source. And so a lot more of those in the county for sure. And, and if you doubt the proliferation of farm ponds, get up in a plain when the sun's low and it looks like the prairie pothole region of the Dakotas because water is everywhere. And that's the first thing that a new landowner wants to do is build a pond. And I tell them, any kind of practice you do, you need to ask the question, am I favoring the quail or the enemies of the quail? And I would argue that most farm ponds are favoring the enemies of the quail, whether it be feral hogs, raccoons, whatever the case might be. Um, Joe Don, do you remember when you saw the first feral hog in Cottle County? Yeah, I shot him on Charles Haven's place. First one I've ever saw. Seen it. Gus was working plant there, and and uh, he'd been seeing some hogs, and I killed one there. Do you know what year that might have been? Oh, it's been 25 years ago, I guess. I, Probably more than that. that. I, I want to say Dave Dvorak said the first one showed up on the Matador Wildlife Area in the 80s. Yeah. So. Yeah, Gus had already killed several before that. Well, I saw my first roadkill one just north of Mason in 1998, and I thought that was odd, but it's a pretty common occurrence. If you go from Paducah to Guthrie, it's it's pretty rare yeah. that you don't see a dead hog along the roadside yeah. kind of thing. So, again, our predator populations, and, and again, we can point to several of them, mm -hmm. have have really done well over the last 40 years. Our raptor populations have done quite well over the last 40 years, and we know that some of those are uh, are tough on quail, too, so... Again, in Toto, you think about the enemies of quail, and it's been a good been a good time. The raptors have enjoyed the uh, the decrease of DDT and organochlorine pesticides, legal protection, things like that. So they've done pretty well, and uh, not always uh, without impact on the quail, kind of thing. Um, Joe, now let's talk about quail hunting and quail hunting practices and and who do you see when when the quail hunting was so popular here in Paducah where were those hunters coming from we didn't have these out of town I'll say transit hunters very few and uh, but when somebody wanted to hunt it's free they didn't charge anybody but the hunters went to coming in here in uh, the American Sportsman Club leased the Tongue River Ranch back I'm gonna say in the 70s and then they put a price tag on hunting, and it went up from there. And before that, everything was, if you want to go hunt, go hunt, and uh, no charge. But uh, but it's uh, it's really been a good revenue for Paducah, for anybody. It's uh, it, it's good. But it's, it, at least this time, this year, I've heard a lot of hunters have turned the lease back for next year. But next year may be the good year, you know. Yeah, and I'm one of those hunters that when you've had a good lease, even though it's costing you quite a bit, you hate to turn it back because you don't know if you're going to get it and the price will be even more, so you you keep buying into it, and sometimes you think you're chasing your tail, but again, you remember how good 2015-16 were, and uh, the South's going to do it again kind of thing. Um, let's talk about foot hunting versus uh, Kawasaki mules and some of those kind of things. What kind of changes have you seen there? Well... I don't approve of them. I have one, but just for the cattle work. But 
when I had a triangle, I didn't allow any four-wheelers except on the roads, the established roads. And uh, they pressure those quails with a four-wheeler if they get off the road and, and the quail can't get away from them. They just keep following those quails in a four-wheeler. Somebody get older as me, they just ride and run them down. And uh, I just I just don't care to hunt out of them. I think it hurts, hurts the quail. I want to bring up something that... Uh, is, is somewhat of a mantra within the Parks and Wildlife Department, and, and that is that quail hunting is self-limiting. Don't worry about the season length. Don't worry about the bag limits. If there's not very many quail out there, the, the hunters will self-regulate. What's your philosophy on that? I think he'll shoot a covey. Some of them will shoot to the last bird in the covey. We would normally, when I was hunting, we'd kill about four birds out of a covey. If it was a 10 or 12 bird covey, we'd kill about four birds or five and I wouldn't shoot a, on a covey rise. We shot just a single, see the dog work. And uh, on a covey rise, you might accidentally hit, the, we shoot one bird each. And if you shot two or three times, you might cripple one or two, and you might lose one or two. So uh, uh, that was our, my, our policy. And we always put hunting early in the afternoon, 435, because we bust a covey, at, I've seen them bust them at night, or I'll say late in the evening, and those birds are scattered and they start whistling, they'll call any raccoon, hawk, or owl. So we'd always quit early. And I think that saves a lot of birds. That, that whole idea of cripping loss is, is yeah. one that's it's, it's probably, I mean, we often talk about it being in the range of 15%. I wouldn't be surprised if it might not be double that because yeah. when you see a bird that you say, I dropped a leg or I feathered that bird, chances are that, that bird's dead. We've got a study going on right now uh, where we have a technician follows at the research ranch during a hunt, and so they know every bird that gets shot at kind of thing, how many cubbies you miss, your dogs didn't find, some really interesting stuff that will be coming out later. But they go back in there the next two days and after that, and if they had a radio collar bird, that's dead within two days of that hunt, it's blamed on crippling loss kind of thing. So uh, really fascinating stuff there. And one of our board members, Dr. Dwayne Elmore up at uh, Oklahoma State, uh, we're working with them now on some new studies. And uh, I was quizzing him about, again, busting that covey right at dark. Do they get back together? He said they've intentionally flushed blue quail to dark and right after dark, and they'll always be back together the next morning, which is kind of yeah. a little bit, I'm a little bit shocked at, but uh, that, that's what their research is showing. Um, we talked a little bit about deer corn. Dan, I'll ask you, if you do a lot of uh, flights for pronghorns and so forth, how many tire blinds and uh, corn feeders do you think have populated West Texas over the last 30 years? Ooh, I don't know if I have an estimate of that, but definitely they... Uh, yes, we've seen a huge increase in those in the, over the last 30 years. Wow, yeah. And it seems like every small town in Texas so, now has a hardware store or the grocery yeah. store selling deer feeders. And, yeah. you know, the deer corn is, is packed up around it like sandbags around a fort sometimes kind of thing. Uh, again, I'm not trying to imply that uh, deer corn is the issue. Again, you can listen to Dr. Henke's podcast on that, but it's one of several things. And and I often say that quail decline is not a single shot. We all want to blame it on this thing, but it's more of a revolver, and there are multiple cylinders operating simultaneously. So we need to be careful about pointing the fingers right. at any anything. 
Joe Don, you've again, you've you've seen a lot over your lifetime, and you 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 got good recall of things. Um, what would you, what if I ask you? You know, if you were king, you had all power, and your task was to bring the quail back in good shape to Cottle County. What be your list of short? What be a short list of things you'd want to do? Well, first thing I do is order up a thunderstorm. Yeah. <laughs> El Nino, right, bring at, on that El Nino. We're ready. And then at the right time, February, March, you know, and uh, that'd be the first thing I'd do. And I don't know what else I'd do, but that'd be the main thing. Now we had talked a little bit about uh, again Milo. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't. I'm not going to pretend to know the economics of farming Milo versus wheat, but let's, you know, we've got a number of, an increasing number of absentee landowners that if we said you need 10% of your property in Milo, they'd do it. Do, do you think it's as simple as doing something like that that would be beneficial? That's right. I think it's well worthwhile if you want quail. And again, we've talked about some of the problems in getting that done, being the deer and the feral hogs and so forth, but I often tell people that even if your food plot, in this case Milo, even if it fails, it's still successful because uh, if it fails to produce seed, there's other weeds growing out there like yeah. buffalo burr yeah. and careless weed those quail are going to get used to yeah. as yeah. well. Um, let's talk about your crystal ball for the future. You're 89 years old. Mm. Me and Dan are still, I'm not quite as young as Dan is, but uh, there's a lot of us out there that, Want to think we're going to be taking our grandkids quail hunting? What's your prognosis? I'm just not sharp enough to realize what what might happen this next year, next ten years. But like Doctor Jackson said, when the last quail is killed, it'll be killed in Collin County, and uh, or he'll be put on the endangered species list. And uh, he may be right if it don't start raining when it needs to. Well, I tell you, the climatologists scare me to death when they mention that term mega droughts, you know, yeah. droughts of 20 to 50 years in duration. We we can't stand that kind of thing. So certainly we keep our eyes cast towards the uh, sky. We're praying for an El Nino yeah. to break this La Nina, and we just have to keep our ground, our property, ready to receive the rain when it comes yeah. to, to get a benefit. Uh, that's pretty well wraps up our quail part, but... Um, uh, Dana, you got some questions that you wanted to ask Jodon about some other involvement he's done? Jodon, how about telling us uh, your involvement in 4-H shooting sports? No greater way to introduce kids to guns and hunting and stuff, maybe by introducing them to 4-H uh, shooting sports. Well, we Howard Smith, and who passed away, you know, recent, uh, he and I started the 22 Rifle Club. ADM already had it going but 4-H club, but nobody coached it. So Howard and I started it, and we coached it for about six or seven years, furnished the guns and ammunition and uh, ourselves, and it got too expensive, and we folded the club up. Then Dr. Howard, I believe it's Dr. Howard, was instrumental in the, uh, at ADM, starting the rifle at the shotgun club and 4-H shooting. And I took that over, and Barry Smith hit me on it. And I coached it several years and uh, had some winners. And, and uh, Stephen Beck and, and uh, Jay Isbell were two of the winners, several of them. And we traveled every shoot around here for 100 miles. I had them in shape. And I had about 30 to 40 boys and girls. And uh, 
and say that's good. They won district, some of them won state. And I had one young man from uh, Matador, about nine or ten. He come over wanting to shoot, wanted me to coach him instead of Matador and uh, Conrad Day. And uh, Dwayne Day was the SES office manager. So I coached him on weekends when he come over and and for about five years, and he shot rifle, pistol, and shotgun. He wouldn't shoot at all. And uh, he left here and went to Jim Ned and finished school, went to A&M, and got on the uh, rifle team, pistol, and shotgun. And uh, then he qualified his score, uh, qualified for the regional, uh, national shoot. And he represented Texas. And Dr. Howard contacted me to introduce him. I couldn't get off to go, but I wrote him a letter, which I have a copy of. And uh, he went to that and qualified in all three events in the top three. But Conrad was a super nice shooter, young man. Well, we thank you. We thank you for your involvement and your participation and your records within the quail deal. And again, you're paying it forward with the shooting sports uh, involvement. And certainly uh, I, I had a, my son went through 4-H shooting sports. And I tell you, if you ever want to be humbled when you're my age now, 68, and you go out with a 16-year-old kid that's pretty handy at the shotgun, you'll be shooting dead quail on the wing because he's already got them before you get there kind of thing. So support your local 4-H shooting sports. You can check with your local county extension agent there, and they can get you hooked up with the right individuals. Uh, again, Joe, Don, Dana, we thank you all for your time today. And I want to issue this as a call for interviews. If you all know of somebody that would make a, an interesting interview, uh, please uh, pass that information along to me, drollins at quailresearch.org, and I'll see about lining them up because, again, uh, I've got several people. I've got podcasts booked for about the next six months, but I'm always looking for good leads. And then i got two dates that I want you to keep in mind. One is applications for the Texas Brigades, the Bob White Brigade, Buckskin Brigade, so forth, are open through March 15th. If you know a 14- to 17-year-old youngster like those McEachern boys were back in the day, uh, be sure and get their application in. You can help support that with your monetary contributions as well. And then uh, the Park City's Quail uh, T. Boone Pickens Lifetime Sportsman Award will be held on March 25th, and they're honoring Kevin Costner with that award. So uh, there's probably still time if you want to attend that. Uh, it'll be a, quite a gala down there. And so with that, Gary, um, again, turning it back to you in the interview, and we're signing off from Paducah, Texas. Thank you, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Jodan, for your valuable insights and perspectives from a lifetime of quail experiences. If you'd like to know more about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation and its special work, go to the website, quailresearch.org. Past episodes of the podcast are available on the site, along with details about research projects and the research ranch. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Appreciate you joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.